It's a nice little problem they're having downstairs. So keep, keep that engaged, keep that going. And uh, we are ready now for our second Sharon. Thank you for your patience with the technical. That's always important. So when we have a challenging relational topic at Context Television, we like to know that Sharon is going to be the balance and the biblical. And she's such a good communicator. She can do it in those tight constraints that media has. And we just love, um, we love using Sharon as a resource. So I'm delighted that we get to hear her longer. And both of our Sharons, you will get to... Um, learn about, if you had questions and Q&A afterwards, in their workshops this afternoon, you'll just get to get up close and personal with them, and you'll, um, you'll get that connection that you wanted to do and those questions that didn't get answered, uh, that might not get answered this morning. But Sharon is a uh, registered psychotherapist and a marriage and family therapist, and she did her MDiv at Tyndale. She's taught in the counseling program there. She's got a robust practice of her own, and she and her husband, Jamie, and their two children attend the Church of the Resurrection here in Toronto. So Sharon, for this theme of radical hospitality, please welcome, and there's a handout, everybody, in your, in your books, too. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, I have to say that this is a tremendous honor to be here, partially because I don't actually seek out speaking engagements. I don't see myself as a speaker or a teacher. So you'll get the irony of teaching at Tyndale, right, when I don't actually see myself as a, t as a teacher. However, I've committed to the Lord that when he makes an opportunity available, even if it seems wonky, I will take it. And there are certain people that I will, uh, I find it very hard to say no to. So this opportunity came up uh, from John Bowman. I met John in 1985 when I was graduating from grade 13. I was in the Interscholastic Christian Fellowship at my high school and was committed that my university needed to have the next step. So once I got that magic envelope from Carleton University in Ottawa, I then had to figure out how to get hold of the staff worker at Carleton. And then I did, and I said, right, what happens at Carleton? So I've known John since I, I, my birthday's late in the year, so I've known John since 1985. And if John Bowen calls me, I simply say yes. So here I am. <laughs> So I also, when I say that God has a sense of humor, it's interesting to me as I have agonized over what on earth do I have to say at a spirituality conference at Wycliffe College around the issues of um, strength and weakness. What do I have to say? I feel like from the first speaker, from Chris Wright on Friday, through the worship, through Wanda's talk, through um, the Fosters talking last night, through Sharon's brilliant exposition this morning, that the Lord has been building a precipice for us all. And I think my role is just to poke, and we will fall over the precipice together, but it will be good. It will be good. It will not be a crushing, dashing against the rocks kind of fall, but rather it would be the kind of fall where we've not heard anything we have not known but perhaps there are some bridges that would allow us to put into practice what we know, 
or take one more step or to fall, um, you know when you do those leadership exercises and they say fall back onto your trusted colleagues, that perhaps we would all fall off the precipice into the trusted hands of God. So here is what I'm hoping will happen today. I have also asked my clients what they would like me to say about radical hospitality. And just so you have a sense of what they have said, I should say, is that it's about welcome and about listening. So as I speak with you, I would like you to pay attention to the themes of welcome and listening. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. I also am someone who cries in worship. I won't need you to take care of me. I've got Kleenex, but I will tell you that right now. And because some of the themes of what I'm going to speak to speak to my life, you may see me cry. It's all good. I have fought with the Lord about removing that particular thorn. That's not happening. So I just bring Kleenex, and I'm good. Um, so in a way to help us start together as a bridge between what Sharon number one said and what Sharon number two is going to say, I would invite you to pay attention to the screen. I'm going to share a little bit of my musical preferences, and we're going to watch the video by uh, Stephen Curtis Chapman called Remember Your Chains. In scripture, remember comes up again and again and again. Not bad, I was able to control myself a little bit. So, let me start with, or continue with a verse. There we go. This for me, these verses from 2 Corinthians chapter one, form my call as a marriage and family therapist. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort that we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. The reason this, this passage speaks to me is that it provides a vision of, com- of community in that although I may sit in the therapist's chair at a particular time on a particular day, it's not unimaginable that at another time on another day I might be in the client chair. I might need someone else to hear me, to be with me. And so I don't sit in that chair thinking, bring all your problems, that's problem 17, solution 14, next. Your problem, problem three, solution six, all done. I don't sit that way. I understand that I'm in that chair for a reason, but in my life, I have had to turn to others for comfort. And therefore, the question of radical hospitality for me is, can I continue to remember the comfort I have received? And then when I remember it, can I give it away? See what I mean? My clients have told me, which I find rather shocking, things that they have never told a single soul. 
So here I am, this woman born and raised in Toronto of a particular age, married with two kids, blah, blah, blah. Why would you tell me? Why would the, why would the man who's having an affair and convinced that God has brought him his soulmate, why would he talk to me? Why would the young woman, um, you know the word for saying it, molested by her father, tell me? I have to be ready to hear those stories and hear what it is about those stories that's needing to be opened up. Because the way that hospitality works, if I'm welcomed, I can go places. If I'm trying to suss out whether you are a hostile audience or not, I'm not actually going to say what I need to say. I'm going to be trying to get, maybe there's a nod of encouragement, so I'll see what I can talk about, blah, 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 blah. Oh, there's a nod. They just want to hear that. So, radical hospitality, you know this. However, what I'm going to suggest we need to sort of jump off the precipice about is the unconditional welcome that we want to offer. This means a willingness to, to meet, to sit, to see, to hear the story of others. Not the story we wish they were telling, but the story they're trying to find the courage to tell. Secondly, radical hospitality involves intentional presence. If I'm sitting in such a way to say, yeah, 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 get to the good stuff, that isn't hospitable and it's not radical. Presence is about communicating to the person you're listening to, I will stay with you. And I'm not going to do it for you. I'm going to be with you while you do cry, scream, rage, sit in absolute silence. Whatever you need, I'm going to be with you. And finally, there's deep listening. Now, I realize that for many of you here, you may be in full-time parish ministry, you may be in chaplaincy, spiritual direction, you certainly have a ministry in your families. Those of us who are married, you know how that spouse can sometimes be your best friend or not. You know how your children can sometimes be the person you have gladly brought into being or not. You know what it's like to have friends that you can take a little bit of, spaced out over time. <laughs> you laugh because you know of, which I, of what I speak. <laughs> the listening here, this deep listening, is the piece that says to the person you're listening to, I'm ready. I'm ready to hear what you have to say. Um, God made space for me, for us, just because. His promises never fail, never, that he does never leaving us or forsaking us, period. He's willing to hear how I have it, even when I'm desperately wrong. And so, for me, as an act of gratitude, 
Radical hospitality is this offer that I make to others that I will welcome unconditionally, that I am present on purpose, and I will listen deeply. Now, the other bit of this is this business of weakness. And um, I want to suggest, sort of bridging again from where Sharon was, that weakness is not the area of our life where we are willingly willing to share. As an example, by show of hands, how many of you are impacted by busyness? Someone asks you, how are you? How are things going? I am so busy. And we all nod, yeah, yeah, busy. Oh my goodness, how are you working that out? And we can talk up here. Who asks you if you are purposefully busy? If this is just the way that you dance around the things that maybe you ought to be doing but don't want to be doing, and you're typically really busy at this particular time of the year because, because, because. I'm suggesting here that where radical hospitality really, really matters is in those areas of our life that we do not readily share, that are not sort of those social badges of pride that we can wear, and the areas that perhaps we would experience deep shame if someone else knew. These are the areas where we spend a lot of time and energy to hide, to mitigate, to minimize, to ignore. But these kinds of weaknesses are kind of like how we would carry jello. If you were able to hold jello in your hand like this, you could actually get from point A to point B without accident. However, if you didn't want anybody to know that you were carrying jello and you were kind of upset about it, you might squeeze jello a little bit. What happens when you squeeze jello in your hand? Out it comes. And when our weaknesses spill out like squeezed jello, really hard to extend radical hospitality because now we're seeing your sin. Now we see where you fail. Now you are that person and why do we have to? Because you know you shouldn't. Radical hospitality in the midst of weakness, is being willing to hold the jello of our lives. Actually see it, actually look at it, and maybe even clean up some of the spill that occurred along the way. I'd like to give you two examples of radical hospitality, one that's personal and one that's biblical. So this personal one, this is me, my grandmother, and my freshly minted husband, Jamie, on the day of our wedding almost 24 years ago. My grandmother um, lived to be 100. Um, she died in 2014, just after her 100th birthday, and she was the one person on earth I knew, regardless of day or time, whether, no matter what it was, I could go to Grand. She also had that particular ministry to everyone in her church, almost everyone who lived in her building, and anyone who met her. That if you needed something, 
If you came by her house, you'd be fed. Whether she had one can, was actually making something, or had to pull it together, you would be fed. If you needed a place just to relax in the quietness of, in a quiet space after a hairy day, you go to Gran. Um, if you had something, just you know, stuff going on, you go to Gran. My grandmother was about five feet tall. She's wearing heels there, and uh, very squishy, very squishy. So to get a hug from Gran, to climb into bed with Gran, to talk to Gran was to feel enveloped, was to feel really warm. Let me give you just a little example of how that radical hospitality um, met me when I was 10, and then after the birth of my first child. When I was 10, um, we were having our sex ed unit in grade five health, and in my family, perhaps unlike yours, topics of sex were not to happen at the dinner table. I hadn't quite learned that lesson yet, and so I was happily explaining to my parents how it is that our neighbor had one boy and three girls because of X and Y chromosomes and how that would have happened. Parents shut that down. Didn't know why. I went back to my grandmother, who, by the way, has had six children and was widowed starting when she was 16 and was widowed by the age of 14, uh, by the age of 30. So she had six kids under the age of 12. And I said to Gran, as 10-year-olds are opt to do, Gran, what's sex like? And my grandmother thought for a minute, and she said, it feels pretty good. That was the end of the conversation. No one else in my family would ever, <laughs> ever have responded to me in such a way to say, here is a question, let's provide an answer, and let's get on with it. When I married Jamie, my grandmother was a little bit like, oh, he's big, he's a big guy. Yep, he is. Does he love the Lord? Yes, he does. Okay. When we had our first child, I remember calling my grandmother on the phone, and I talked to her every week, and Claire was a little late, and then I was able to call her from the hospital and say, she's here. My grandmother burst into tears, saying, I have waited for this day for you. How exciting. And then promptly made her way down to the hospital. My grandmother was a primary caregiver for our kids. Like she would, like on the ground, kind of play with them when she was in her 80s and early 90s. This is a woman who, you are just all in there. So her loss, was tremendously impactful because where, who was going to be that person that I could always go to regardless? She was God with skin on for me. Now, oops, sorry. The biblical example, I'm gonna tell you a story and you'll probably guess who this is. So it starts out rather poorly, but then it gets really good. So there once was a woman who didn't have any children. Despite being in a loving marriage, having good health, and being of childbearing age, she was not able to conceive a child. The women in her community knew of that concern, but they weren't really providing any solace. In fact, they were mocking her a bit. Her husband, 
knowing how much pain this caused her, turned up his efforts to be a great husband, and even asked her, you know, am I not enough? You have me, we don't need kids, it's okay. No matter what he did, it was nothing soothed the loss. So one day, this woman went to her place of worship and poured out her heart. As a priest came into the sanctuary, he was shocked by what he saw. Now while he couldn't hear what she was saying, it was very clear to him by the way she was saying it that she must be drunk. So he went over to give her what for. How dare she desecrate this holy place by being drunk super early in the day, but drunk nonetheless in the sanctuary. Now you might have recognized this woman as, as Hannah from the first book of Samuel. Samuel. The priest confronts her and in my imagination, because she's been pouring her soul out to God about the impact of not having this baby, she might have turned to the priest and given him a very large piece of her mind. However, all we know is that after the priest confronts her, she tells him that she is not drunk, but she is telling her God what she needs. And when he realizes his error, here's where it starts to get good. When he realizes his error, he blesses her, sends her on her way. You go for it, Hannah, hands up, face down, whatever you need to do in the sanctuary to let the Lord know what you need, you do. And how does the story end? She conceives a son, the thing she has wanted most, and promises to give that son in service to the Lord. Now I love this story because at first people are afraid to deal with Hannah's distress. They want to find other ways to, you know, get on with that woman, get on with it. However, when she has had the opportunity to spill herself out before God, things start to change. I would suggest to you that there are probably people in our life who are acting very bizarrely, who are saying things that don't make a lot of sense, who are off in the distance and we're like, what is going on over there? And I would suggest to you that those are the people to whom we need to offer radical hospitality, to hear how they have it, what is the weight that they are carrying, and how can I help you move forward? One of the challenges of radical hospitality is that there are details. We live in a time of incredibly curated lives. You know, I'm showing up here in this outfit as opposed to my pajamas. I will tell you that I thought, what outfit should I wear that will make me look sufficiently credible? in front of this office, this esteemed bunch of people. I will tell you that in some circles, because of my hair, or my skin, or my gender, I might not be welcomed. So you find ways of making the right kind of box around yourself so you can at least say what you need to say. However, that curation doesn't necessarily give someone a full picture of who you are. It just allows you to play with their rules and move in. What I'm suggesting is, what does it take 
to capture someone's attention long enough so the part of the story that needs to be shared can actually be shared. Not the part you want to hear, the part that needs to be shared. So, I would ask you, just have a little think about this, who listens to you? Or another way of saying that, who do you allow to listen to you? And then secondly, to whom do you or are you allowed to listen? I ask, you that, I ask us that question of who listens to you and to whom you listen, because there is this great temptation in busy, curated lives to dive into a forensic moment. So those of you who love CSI, you will forgive me for this very bad impersonation I'm about to do. But whatever the redhead guy is, way back when, he was always the one who would come and there'd be some kind of something, and then he'd whisk his glasses off and say, it looks like there's been a murder here. Which, you know, if there happens to be, thanks very much, <laughs> in a very curated kind of way, when we're busy, we sort of can show people something, a blinding flash of the obvious. And the invitation is to say, oh yes, there is your blinding flash of the obvious. But is that kind of like the Wizard of Oz, don't pay attention to the man behind the mirror, behind the curtain, or is that actually what needs to be seen? Are we willing to actually see what needs to be seen? Or are we satisfied by the thing that we actually want to see? Don't tell me about the messiness of your life. Tell me about how you're busy, and we'll both commiserate on how busy and busy and busy and busy, and oh, I've got to go, thanks so much. Do we actually want to sit with the details? Okay. So let's unpack a little bit more this unconditional welcome. I'm suggesting that in order for us, in our places of work, in the marketplace, in our homes, I'm suggesting that unconditional welcome is a willingness to see and hear the story of another. Not the one we want to hear, not the one that should be happening, but the one that is happening. I'm suggesting that we need to find ways of grappling with the lived experience of someone else even when it does not neatly intersect with our own experience. And finally, I'm suggesting that to offer unconditional welcome means that we will put aside our need to know and engage what, what, with what needs to be said. And so, I'm going to introduce you to another, or reacquaint you with another uh, biblical story um, this is the woman who washes Jesus' feet. The story is set up, in, the video is in two parts. One is the interpretation of that woman breaking the alabaster box and pouring out the perfume on Jesus. And the other is the singer talking about her alabaster box. 
So let's see what comes up for you as you offer welcome. Who welcomed her? It was Jesus who welcomed her. Now whether or not you have a story that would invite you to be shamed, if it was known that you would be shamed or on the margins, this is our story in that where we were, we would not have been able to be with Jesus. And yet he welcomed us. And by virtue of that welcome, we now, each one of us in this room, know something of what it takes to really face who we are and be welcomed. Hence, this is what I'm suggesting we now give away by allowing someone else to really feel like they are seen and heard and their life can be spoken of. A similar uh, situation, so this al the Alabaster Box song is based on Luke 7, 37 to 50. You can also think of the man born blind in John chapter 9, verses 1 to 12. And bless their little pointed heads, the disciples are trying to do Jesus, right? They got this now. So here's this guy who's born blind, and they say, who sinned? Let us know, let's fix it. And what does Jesus say? It's not about who sinned. This is an opportunity for the glory of God to be shown in his life this day. What if our act of radical hospitality was an opportunity for the glory of God to be shown in the life of the person to whom you are listening to? What if, and psychologically this is true, when someone shares a story that they're not real sure about, if the response of the listener is, that can't be true, that's not a big deal, eh, that happened to me last week, folks don't share that story again because somehow the messages got back to them, not important. Even in the midst of, I would say, severe trauma, if when that person tells their story and there is a, oh, tell me more about that, that mitigates the impact of trauma. Who are the people in your life who need to be heard? Now, right, okay. If we are going to be these people who can offer an unconditional welcome, we also need to be the kind of people who realize that sometimes being ones to hear the story throws us off balance. Because you're feeling thrown off balance, doesn't mean that you're wrong or bad or not listening correctly or you've not put Sharon's 10 steps to happy therapy into action. It means that you are hearing the difficulty of the story. It means that you are aware, huh, even though it's not my story, this has an impact. Hmm. 
it's not my story, it has an impact, can I still sit? Can I still witness? Can I still affirm this is hard, this is challenging? If we as listeners aren't prepared to acknowledge the impact of the story on us as listeners, we're losing an opportunity. So here is a little task for you to take, and I'm, I apologize for being so small. What I want you to imagine is a, as a big pie. Put your favorite fruit in there, doesn't matter to me, imagine a pie. And you're gonna divide that pie into eight sections. Starting with the, and I think I can do this, maybe not. Starting on top right, the sections are career, money, health, friends and family, significant other romance, personal growth, fun and recreation, and physical environment. Imagine for yourself that the outer rim is 10. Things are perfect. And the point at which all the lines intersect is zero. Things are a disaster. If you were to plot how you are doing today in each of those eight areas, where would you score yourself? So again, career, money, health, friends and family, significant other slash romance, personal growth, fun and recreation, physical environment. If you were to score where you are in your life right now on a scale of 10, the outer rim, and zero, the center, where would you put yourself? I'm gonna give you about a minute. We're gonna do speed testing here. Just put a little X on the line to mark where you think you're at. And when you have created your X's, I want you just to join them up. For anyone who is math averse, I am not going to ask you to total it and create an average. I just want you to see the shape that comes up when you join up all your X's. Now with that shape, if it actually were a wheel that was meant to transport you from point A to point B, how well would that wheel roll? <laughs> it could be itty bitty, it could be big and lovely, it could be kind of lumpy. How well would you actually get from point A to point B? Is there anything you can do about that? I've had some folks say to me that maybe, maybe career isn't at a 10, 
but they've made some choices and they're changing careers, so they're actually quite happy that it's at a five or a four, and they exempt the ba-dump, ba-dump, ba-dump of the wheel because it makes sense to them. For other folks, the shape of the wheel, the lumpiness of it, tells them what they've known for a long time, that things are not well. And to make a change would involve lots and lots of work. And they'd rather lumpy bump along than engage in the work. Others, it's really small, but they're happy for the pace of this little small wheel. The reason I suggest this uh, wellness wheel is to give you a really quick way of taking a picture of how things are doing for you. So that when you are aware of how things are for you, the wellness of your soul, if you will, perhaps you might be able to hear the lumpy bumpiness of somebody else's wheel. And maybe you might be a person who helps to round out a particular dip. Or maybe you lumpy bump together because you know something of that journey. This is uh, the crater of a volcano in Iceland. Last summer, my family and I uh, went to Iceland on a vacation. And since there's not a whole lot to see in Iceland, not so many trees, there are lots of volcanic craters, lots of glaciers, and there are more sheep than people. So when we climbed up this volcano that's about 3,000 years old, it's kind of hard to take it all in because it's this massive expanse. To offer radical hospitality is to, in effect, offer this massive expanse. As you can see from the picture, there are peaks and valleys. Some places have the evidence of life. Other places, not so much. And radical hospitality requires us to say, this is the vista that we have. This is what it is. So you settle in. Maybe you take a look at one little part. You pay attention to how it feels. And you agree that, I'm not exactly sure where we're going, but here we are. Intentional presence. This has a relational vibe to it in radical hospitality because we need to know what are we actually present to? How do we demonstrate this presence? And how visible is it when we're not present? So we can say to someone, yeah, happy, come on over, let's talk. And then, have you seen this? Yeah, go ahead, I got it, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, right, honestly. And you carry on. Or I can be a bit of a magpie, so if someone is talking to me, and something else happens, you might see my head swing to figure out what was going on. And in listening, I've got really acute hearing. So unless I'm in a very uh, quiet space like my office, if we're in a restaurant and you want to give me 
the full story. I'll be listening and also tracking the conversation over here and the conversation over there and the plates that have fallen in the, in the, uh, in the kitchen. So it's not enough just to say, I'm here. It's important to take that next step and say, so how am I, am I here? How will you know that I am dialed in? How will you know that I'm ready to hear what you have to say? And I would invite you, who, those who are here, do you know when you're present? Do you know how it feels to be really tuned in to somebody else? Do you know when you're, you're sort of watching the clock go? Has anyone ever said, hey, I'm over here. Come on back. Radical hospitality, that offer of welcome, is intentional. I am here and I am with you. And again, it mirrors our Lord. I am here and I am with you. You can find me. I'm tangible. One of the waterfalls in Iceland. And I, I share that picture with you to couple up with intentional presence. Under voice, you have the top six core human emotions. And I would suggest to you that that ability to be present means that you're willing or have the capacity in the moment to sit with whichever of these six core emotions gets expressed and whatever that calls forward with you. So if you are really good with joy, love the party, want to hear how it's gone from glory unto glory, it may not cost you anything to be present with the person you're listening to. However, if the person is angry, um, when I first started my career, I would go functionally deaf when folks raised their voices. I kid you not, my first family, where mom and dad were divorced, he had moved on to a younger, newer model. She had not yet, but they had a shared child, and they wanted to be together, so okay, let's do this. And I can tell you, I have never, ever heard such language at such a volume all at the same time. And I can still see myself in my office with the family on the couch, and I'm like this. I'm not hearing anything. All I can see is the venom being spewed. All I can see. And I have to say they called each other everything but a child of God in that moment. And I had to learn, okay, anger, not really helpful for the therapist to check out. I have to find a way to stay grounded and figure out how am I gonna deal when anger comes into the room? How will I stay present and be able to walk with and hopefully calm, or at least help that anger be more useful in the moment? What about surprise and disgust? Have you ever had someone tell you something where you're like, come again? How, how, I don't even know how that makes sense and you're sort of struggling in your own mind to make it make sense. That's not your job right now. Your job is to be able to say, oh, here's surprise right now. How do I helpfully manage surprise so that I can hear what's being said? 
This is a place dealing with emotion in which our weakness, the thing we wouldn't gladly share, might crop up. If it's not okay for Christians to be angry, then the fact the person's expressing anger is a problem. That is the CSI moment. What you want is the welcome moment. You're angry, let's go with it. So maybe we circle back a little bit to both what Stephen Curtis Chapman was saying, remember your chains, and realize that your chains are gone, and what Cece Winans was singing about, we don't know the cost of the oil in the alabaster box. Maybe it's for us to turn back and say, what is the comfort that we have received from God that we can use to comfort others? Where has the Lord allowed us to know what it's like to be in those very deep, very dark places? And how did he meet us? I would suggest to you that the kind of welcome we have all received, and here's my assumption, I could be wrong, my assumption is that Jesus did not come barging into you. My assumption is that when the Lord made himself known to you, that he spoke to you in a really unique way that let you know, holy smokes, holy smokes. I would suggest to you that even though it might have been really surprising or frightening, you still want to take the step forward. And I would suggest to you that if you were to talk with someone about your Jesus moment, it's probably one of the most precious things you've ever experienced. Now, I'm not suggesting that's because you were all drug dealers, and in the moment Jesus came and took away the addiction, and you were no longer a drug dealer, and it's this great big, I don't know, doves descended, the angelic choirs were singing. You don't have to have had that experience to know the divine comfort of God. What you do perhaps need to have is a recognition that you needed to be reached. The Lord saw you, reached out to you, offered comfort for you, continues to offer comfort to you, and now is asking you to give some of that away as you continue to receive comfort. Effectively, you're sharing what you've been receiving. These succulents are found on, or were found on every extinguished volcano that we climbed when we were in Iceland. You need to imagine, if you can, a really craggy landscape. No trees, no flowers, lots of sheep. And everywhere we went, I was fascinated by how these little beautiful succulents found ways to grow in the rocks of the glaciers. And I think that radical hospitality looks like these little succulents. In those hard places and hard times, 
when it's a real challenge to sit and be present and focus and engage, something grows. So I would suggest to you, and maybe leave you with this, that radical hospitality is our ability to give the gift of presence. Not solutions, not quick fixes, just presence. There's an old song, well, it's kind of dumb, I won't say that. I have asked people what makes a difference in therapy. And I realize that not all of you are doing any kind of counseling or therapy work. I've asked my clients what makes a difference. And the kinds of things that I have heard is that it seems like you care. I've never told anybody this, but it felt like I could tell you. Or, you didn't let me just babble on and babble on. You stopped me when you thought that I'd be sharing too much, and you just let me get a little bit out, and then asked me if I was okay. Research suggests that the number one curative factor in any kind of human talk therapy kind of encounter is the client's belief that we care. So radical hospitality is putting flesh on God's desire to care for his people. I think it's a tremendous responsibility and privilege to sit with people in the messy stuff. It's not always awesome in the moment, but it's a real privilege to walk with someone through the messiness. I am super grateful that the career that I thought I would have as a 12-year-old, believe that, there's another story for that, but I'll leave that for another time, the career that I thought I would have as a 12-year-old is the career that the Lord has orchestrated in my life. I'm extremely grateful that I do get to hear those stories. And while I long for the day to no longer have any work, sadly, I have more work that I know what to do with. And what I wonder is, is that, that's not because I'm an awesome therapist. I think it's because we all long to be heard, we all long to be seen, and we all long to be cared for. If you have any role in seeing, caring for, listening to, my invitation to you, as my brothers and sisters in the Lord, is to remember what you have received from the Lord in your hour of need and give some of that away. That could be your gift of radical hospitality. And with that, 15 minutes early, I close. <laughs>